One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song? Yeah, that's a little creepy. Do you remember that? Because I do. That's the old Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. Now, guys, if if you're listening to this from outside the U.S., you may be thinking, what the heck was that? Well, that was Sesame Street, very popular for elementary school kids or preschool, uh, 70s, I guess early 80s. Anyway, it was a thing. I remember watching Sesame Street, but there was a little segment called One of These Things is Not Like the Other. And here's how it relates to this topic, all right, because I'm not nuts. Let's take, for example, you have five reproductive age females. They're all having unprotected intercourse, and they're all late on their cycle. Okay, well, of this N of five, you perform a urine pregnancy test, and it's positive. All right, well, what's the likely diagnosis? Well, excluding some really rare conditions that we're going to talk about in this episode as well, you would say that our N of five, they're all pregnant to some degree, right? First trimester pregnant, second trimester, or whatever, based on their LMP. Because this end of five, remember, in our little scenario, they're all reproductive age, they're all late on their period, they're having unprotected sex, and they have positive pregnancy tests. It's a no-brainer, all right, they're pregnant. But what if I told you that one of those five was not like the other? What if one of those five, where everything else is still the same, reproductive age, having unprotected sex, and she's late on her period also has end-stage renal disease. Oh, and by the way, she's on dialysis. Does that change your diagnosis a little bit? Well, it should, because one of those things is not like the other. Yeah, that one patient may not be pregnant at all. It may be a phantom HCG. Super fascinating. And so we're going to discuss this whole issue, which happened to us, to our group, just last week. So let's get into this issue of the positive pregnancy test in the ESRD patient. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So I've said it many times before, we get ideas for the podcast from real-world clinical experiences, either questions that we get from our podcast family members or stuff that happens within our own practice. And this was legit. I mean, this happened to uh, one of the other attendings. We have, of course, a secure you know text line. And oh, by the way, how cool is that? So we can bounce ideas back Uh, one on another and go, hey, is this what I'm thinking about correct? Or did I hallucinate this? Or what was that guidance again? And the ability to do that, to have this open channel, I encourage that for 
any group. Super helpful. Uh, plus, we, we get this heads up on, on fascinating patients so that if we see them in clinic, we're like, oh, right, right. I remember this text conversation. Uh, so I, I know a little bit about you. So it just, it just overall improves not just quality of care, um, but our awareness of patients. Well, that's exactly what happened. So we got a text uh, late last week. Well, when the attending said, hey, uh, just heads up, we're going to have a complicated pregnancy coming up. Uh, this patient has ESRD, end-stage renal disease, on dialysis. She was late on her cycle. She's reproductive age. Uh, you know, the possibility of pregnancy was there. So I did a pregnancy test, and it's positive. So brace yourselves because this may be coming. Okay, and that's the right thing to do because that is an extremely high risk patient. They're at risk for preterm birth, uh, obviously, if they get out of the first trimester, because the risk of miscarriage is, is much higher there. Uh, risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, uh, in addition to the regular uh, medical complications of the patient herself, which can possibly include things like um, electrolyte disturbances due to the um, hemodialysis, uh, volume overload issues. So yes, it, it is a it was a perfect thing to give out that signal, be on the lookout for this. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's see if she gets out of the first trimester because that's, that's first of all, the fact that she conceived is really um, impressive because end-stage renal disease patients have like uh, one of one to one hundredth of the fertility of the general population. And that's not my number. I mean, that's commentaries that have been published. Is like you take a peak, healthy, reproductive age couple, take that fertility and then do one hundredth of that and you get the fertility of an end-stage renal disease patient because of ovulatory issues and quality and you can go down the line, all right? Issues with implantation uh, directly related to serum creatinine, kidney function, electrolyte disturbances, and so forth. So yeah, fertility is already compromised. However, because of the advancements in hemodialysis uh, uh, and, and in treatments and early identification, women are, are having increased fertility, not the same as general population baseline, but fertility is improving. And obviously, there's pregnancies in women who have end-stage renal disease, okay? Uh, and they're obviously high risk. So that's a separate issue. The first issue is figuring out, is this patient actually pregnant. So this attending did the right thing. Hey, you're late on your period, which the majority of end-stage renal disease patients are. Uh, so recognizing that, we can't really use that because you, your cycle's already off because of your other renal condition. Um, let's get a pregnancy test. And lo and behold, of course, the urine pregnancy test was positive. Now, just because you're on dialysis, remember, doesn't mean you don't make urine. Some patients are anuric and some can still make some urine. And in this case, the UCG was positive. That triggered the call. Be on the lookout. There's this high-risk patient out there. I'm going to send her immediately down uh, for an ultrasound just to get a baseline, see what we're talking about. Now, that transvaginal ultrasound was stone-cold normal. I mean, endometrium looked non-pregnant. There was no evidence of secretory endometrium. There was no uh, uh, early gestational sac, not even a pseudo sac. I mean, there was nothing. There was nothing in the tubes, uh, no free fluid in the pelvis, nothing in the anexa. Like, it's a stone-cold normal gynecological appearing ultrasound. And then, of course, it hit. Um, she may not be pregnant at all. And that triggered uh, this idea for this episode. And yes, if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, you need to correlate that to a beta HCG, of course. And that was done. The problem is if the UCG is elevated, so is, gonna, so is the beta HCG. And, and in these cases, 
this is where we have to be very careful here, guys, because in these patients with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis, now trust me, I'm going to go through all of the signs here in a minute. I'm going to read you a super impressive case report uh, that was published back in 2007 of this everything this poor patient went through. Already she had end-stage renal disease, but she went through this whole gamut looking for this mystery pregnancy, which of course was, she was not pregnant. It was, it was a phantom 8CG. Uh, because of her condition. We're going to talk about the entire science. We're going to talk about ACG uh, biochemistry. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, but we've known since the 80s that certain women, not all, okay, certain women uh, who with a positive UCG, a positive beta ACG that's low level, okay, and I'm not talking about some that are like, uh, you know, a thousand, that's a little odd. Uh, that's possibly a real pregnancy, but in these persistent low-level positives, the patient may not be pregnant. So we have to be very careful here. In end-stage renal disease patients, especially if they're on hemodialysis, I am not saying that every reproductive age patient who's late on her period and having unprotected sex with a positive pregnancy test is really not pregnant. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to consider outside of number one is that you're pregnant to prove it otherwise. But then we have to consider the fact that maybe she's not pregnant at all. Now, being pregnant, realizing the top diagnosis is pregnant to prove it otherwise, then comes the sub-diagnosis, right? Is it an IUP? Uh, and is it viable or not? Or is it extra uterine, which is a topic? So that's a whole other issue. But uh, So we got to do that. And I'm going to talk about that workup in a minute. Number one, make sure she's not really pregnant. And then number two, this low-level positive pregnancy test in these patients is very well documented uh, to be a phantom. Now, how much of that is, is, is common? How common is that? Is it like 50%, 60% of these patients? Uh, no, not at all. And I'm going to give you a prevalence here in a minute, although the prevalence is even hard to figure out because most of these uh, reports in the literature come from case reports, very small case theories. Uh, so we just don't have a lot of data, okay? But, but it seems to be uh, under 10%, okay? Under 10% of those who have a positive pregnancy test uh, with end-stage renal disease uh, may be phantom, specifically around 8%, and that just comes from one publication that I'll give you in a minute. But, but here's the take-home message. Number one, oh my goodness, if you are pregnant with end-stage renal disease and on dialysis, you're super high risk, assuming that it's intrauterine and viable. Right, so because of that positive pregnancy test, that patient who very well may be pregnant and very well may not be, has now just signed up for this mini entire evaluation of this whole workup to try to figure out where that ACG is coming from. And no, it is not always from the syncytiotrophoblast because there are other places in the body that produce HCG. So I'm going to give you this here in a minute, and I don't mean choriocarcinoma. Yes, that's possible. That's rare. But I'm saying there's normal physiological sources uh, of HCG outside of pregnancy. Super fascinating. So that's where we're going here, okay? That's happened to our group. And the take-home number one is not to, to disbelief, uh, not to discard, uh, not to relegate every HCG-positive patient who's end-stage renal disease and on dialysis as phantom. Please don't do that. However, the purpose of this episode is to realize that one of these things is not like the other. And so when the, ba the baseline HCG is this, this little low-level positive, I'm going to tell you what those numbers are because there's actually very nice tables that have 
an interpretation of HCG based on patient age, based on patient medical condition, um, and based on, on other factors. I'm, I'm going to explain that in a minute, including some possible medications. Uh, yeah, so that we can't just think every positive UCG is a pregnancy. We know obviously that's not the case. All right, and let, let me just be very clear here: for our purpose of this discussion, we are assuming no choriocarcinoma. Uh, this is not postmolar. Okay, this is just a just patient who's end stage renal disease. She's working through that whole issue. She's on dialysis, and because of her irregular periods, and she's having sex. Um, gets diagnosed with a UCG, but nothing in the uterus. I'm going to walk us through this story, and I'm going to read you some fascinating literature. And, and here's the catch. Here's the, the dilemma. Is this real or is it phantom? That's why I titled this Pregnancy Tests in End-Stage Renal Disease Women, A Cautionary Tale, because in the patient's best interest, unfortunately, we're going to have to do a lot more tests. All right? And what that looks like, I'll tell you in a minute, but it, it is complicated. And this is one of the issues with having super sensitive pregnancy tests, which is great. I'm all for it. But having an HCG that becomes positive with a urine test, uh, you know, blood test is five, a pregnancy test uh, in the urine is at around 10 uh, that becomes positive. It's good. It's fantastic. But I remember when pregnancy tests were like, weren't positive until like 25 or 50. And guys, I'm not old. Just that the technology moves quick. Or I'm talking about regular old store urine pregnancy tests, not blood work. Um, and, and so especially in these kind of patients, it's a good reminder. I learned this uh, in residency, and it's amazing. I, it was kind of back in my back file cabinet, and I'm like, all right, well, she's pregnant. We've got to figure that out. And then it hit me like two or three hours later, wait, she may not be pregnant at all. I totally remember the end-stage renal disease pregnancy test dilemma conundrum. And so this is why we're doing this episode. All right, now that I've set that stage, I want to give two disclosures. One, um, I still can't breathe. Oh my goodness, it's driving me insane. I know you guys probably hear it. I don't sound like myself, at least I don't to me, because I can't hear anything through my right ear because my eustachian tube's all blocked. Um, I I can't stand it anymore. I can't stand it, can't stand it, can't stand it, can't stand it. I've said this on the last like two episodes. I've got some weird viral thing. First, I had bronchitis. Now it's translated to, now my, my nose has declared a war on myself uh, by closing off his passageways. I, I have no idea. So, short of that, oh, that's my first disclosure. Second disclosure, uh, it's just here's how interesting this is. Uh, I play the Sesame Street little song, right? Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in, on the border of Texas, a little town that's now no longer little, it's a big major center, uh, which is Laredo, Texas. Many of good country song has been done on Laredo, Texas. Uh, and it's always on like narco wars on the TV show that's great for my hometown. Oh, it's terrible. But anyway, uh, it was a great little place growing up. I thought everybody spoke Spanish, right? I thought the whole world had beans and rice and tortillas for their meal. I mean, that was Laredo, a fantastic uh, city uh, and a gateway to, to the U.S. because it's an international bridge uh, to Mexico. But um, growing up in Laredo uh, around that time, right, it was the 70s-ish, uh, my mom was actually uh, on a little local uh, education show, which was uh, basically Sesame Street for the Hispanic market. 
Um, it was called picadillo. Um, picadillo in, in Hispanic culture is as a specific meat kind of dish. Um, but the show is picadillo. Um, and and now when I look back, I mean, you know, my mom has now passed. And, and, and I'm thinking, where did I get this love of education and teaching? It's amazing. I mean, my, you know, my mom had two years of, of college as an associate's degree. My, my dad uh, had the same thing. You know, they, they both worked. Uh, you know, long hours to provide for us. You know, my mom was a school teacher. My dad worked in sales. Um, but my mom was part of this little TV show called Picadillo, which was a Sesame Street for the Hispanic market. You can actually Google. It's in the Texas uh, archive, TV archives. And you put in a Picadillo TV show and you'll get one little episode. My mom's in it. She's little Rosita. And my mom's name was Rosa, Rosa. Um and that will live on forever. I mean, it's in the Texas archives of educational programs. And so I'm proud of that. But as I think about where did I get this passion for education, that's one thing that they always poured into me is you can do whatever you want to do. Uh, if you study, you dedicate yourself, they poured that into me. You know, they weren't doctors, lawyers, you know, international bankers. I mean, they they, they just provided for us the best that they could. Um, and, but my mother as a teacher uh, I think that that really has her legacy is, is what I'm doing here. Um, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. So Picadillo, yes, there was a, a Hispanic answer to Sesame Street so that when our kids, when the kids along the Rio Grande border saw uh, Sesame Street, you know, kids didn't really look like them. Um, and so this idea was to make a show that was like Sesame Street, educational, um, um, geared towards preschool, elementary children, but but all along uh, the border culture. Anyway, just thought I'd throw that out. Now let's get back to the content. Remember, if you think this is so rare, I mean, I'm never going to see this. End-stage renal disease, really, uh, you know, positive pregnancy tests, that's not my patient population. Well, can be, uh, just like we didn't think you'd see the non-previa accreta, and that happened to one of our podcast family members, happened to us, that's why we did that as an episode. So yes, there's stuff out there, guys. So if you listen, if you look at this title, you're like, I don't know, is this really my patient population? What if your next patient uh, walks in next week for a, a new OB, says, by the way, is this going to interfere with my Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Friday dialysis sessions? <laughs> okay, whoa, what? Wait a minute, back that up a minute. Let, let's, let's, what, what was that? Because these patients, again, as we increase early diagnosis, start early dialysis, and start normalizing their physiological function, fertility is improving, obviously not going back to baseline, but it is improving. And this is why it's important for us to be aware of these things like this, because positive pregnancy tests in these patients, unless you do an ultrasound and you see a gestational sac with a crown rump length and a yolk sac, that you're like, okay, it seems that you're pregnant. Uh, if you don't see that, this is where the confusion comes in, right? So remember, I have to be, I'm saying this multiple times because I don't want to be misunderstood. Believe a positive pregnancy test in end-stage renal disease patients, especially on dialysis. Believe it because they're pregnant till proven otherwise. But if you don't see anything in there and you have this low-level positive HCG that won't go away, uh, and I'll give you those numbers in a minute, consider the phantom HCG phenomenon. To put this in perspective, uh, again, in an attempt to protect the patient, look what we put patients through. And it's the right thing to do. I'm just saying it's look at this additional stress on top of having end-stage renal disease and being on dialysis. 
um, look at things that we have to do to protect her. So there's this case report from 2007. The title is An Unusual Case of Elevated Serum Total Beta 8CG. This was published in Annals of Clinical Laboratory Science, uh, spring of 2007. Now, the title says an unusual case, but it's really not that unusual. I mean, this is something that, that does happen. Now, what made it more unusual was the degree of elevation. Okay, so let me just spoil it here for a minute. Most of these uh, uh, tonically elevated ACGs are around 20s to 30s, maybe in the 50s. Okay, but this patient, who is a 35 year old African American patient who presented with a serum 8CG, guys, so this is not just urine, this is an 8C, this is a blood test of 290. So it is a beta quant, not qualitative. I mean, the number is 290 milliAUs per ml. So, okay. Now, it's not in the thousands, but it's, I mean, it's definitely positive. Um, and they couldn't establish a date of, of EGA because she had really irregular periods, obviously, because she was an end-stage renal disease patient uh, who was on dialysis. They performed an ultrasound. And no gestational sac was seen. There was an endometrial stripe that was 46 millimeters. But look, they did have a 5 by 5 by 3 centimeter left complex adnexal cyst. It did have some septations. So they're like, okay, maybe it's coming from the ovary. That's the right uh, assumption. It's it's okay. You got to assume something. Remember, we're under the limit of detection. So this is the, the conundrum here. And say adrenal disease, she's on dialysis. She's got a beta ACG of 290, nothing in the uterus because, of course, it's only 290. Um, but they do have this little complex uh, adnexal cyst with a couple of septations. So let me read you the case report uh, as it reads. Quote, the differential diagnosis included missed abortion, ectopic pregnancy, hydatidiform mole, malignancy, or pituitary abnormality. A cervical dilation and curatage confirmed nor, no chorionic villi or fetal parts, uh, and this was done as the ACG remained tonically at that level. Okay, there's so a right thing to do. So, like, well, at least we know now it's not uterine. All right, so then it keeps going. Quote, an exploratory laparotomy was then performed two weeks later, which showed bilateral hydrosalpages, marked intra-abdominal adhesions, and bilateral complex adnexal masses. The patient underwent bilateral salpingectomy and a right oophorectomy. And the exam revealed by pathology bilateral hydrosalpings, benign ovary, and no evidence of ectopic pregnancy. End quote. Okay, so... I mean, wow. I mean, talk about really doing due diligence. I mean, they went and scoped her. I'm sorry. There was an X-lap, uh, found past evidence of PID. Uh, like, oh, clearly it's coming from this cyst. It must be ACG producing, uh, meaning like a choriocarcinoma. And uh, no, so that, that was not it. Now, they keep on. Let me give you the rest of it. Quote, serial measurements of serum ACG remained moderately elevated after the surgery. So here's the tie-in. This could be related to the patient's past medical history, which was significant for irregular cycles due to end-stage renal disease, which had been treated by peritoneal dialysis and then hemodialysis, end quote. Well, yeah, I mean, you think? I mean, they talk about doing due diligence. This patient even had an X-lap looking for uh, the source of HCG. So, yeah, where was this HCG coming from? Well, it goes all the way back to 1985, when Schwartz et al. actually published this phantom HCG phenomenon 
uh, in 18 women who were followed for, for chronic hemodialysis and found that, yeah, this is actually a thing. Now, this was published back in the journal Nephron, okay, 1985, and that first listed author was Schwartz. The title was Value of Human Chorionic Gonadotropin Measurements in Blood as a Pregnancy Test in Women on Maintenance Hemodialysis, end quote. The take-home message of that report was, hey, sometimes these things are elevated and they kind of stay chronically that way without real pregnancy. But I just found that case report from 2007 super fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you're like, oh my gosh, it's 290. Where's the pregnancy? Uh, there's nothing in the uterus. Let's keep following it. It's not going away. Do a DNC. Nope, it's nothing there. Yeah, we, we need to do something about this. Um, now, remember, 2007. So, I mean, why she didn't have a laparoscopy? I'm not sure, but she went for laparotomy. Uh, and in this case, probably the best cause because there was a lot of adhesions, had her salpingies, and but it was the ovary had nothing to do with that. So the the source of HCG in that patient, just like in Schwartz, uh, was actually pituitary uh, production. And I'm going to get into this here, right? So where is this HCG coming from? Well, the pituitary under certain physiologic um, pathological stress conditions can release uh, HCG uh, and or other uh, uh, biomarkers that, that are cross-reacting with this because of a similar uh, alpha subunit, okay? And, and so it's super fascinating. I'm going to get into that science here in a minute. But all to say, this is why one of those things does not look like the other. But this goes all the way back to 1985 with Schwartz in his mini little series stating, yeah, this is kind of a tricky issue. So while you have to exclude pregnancy and it's best practice to look for extra uterine sources of HCG, sometimes this is just a pituitary doing its thing under end-stage renal disease conditions and it's called the phantom HCG phenomenon. It's hard to figure out just how common this is because look how the funnel has to come down to a point, right? So you start with reproductive age female as as the big end and then you come down to a very very small niche group end stage renal disease who are on dialysis who then are having unprotected intercourse who then have a positive ucg so the funnel gets very narrowed so we don't really know how common this is but there was a report that was published in 2013 in the Indian Journal of Nephrology, where they followed uh, patients who went in for dialysis uh, who were on the renal transplant list and and figured out basically that of 62 females, five uh, had this problem, persistent ACG level greater than five, all right? That gave a a percentage of 8.1%. So, Super niche, again, just one study, but it does say, hey, it's not rare. It's not like 1%, and thankfully, it's not 50%, but 8% is is pretty significant. Uh, They go on to say, quote, this test was repeated in four weeks uh, to look for stability and to rule out uh, discrepancy. These patients were then referred to gynecology and surgery departments for evaluation. Physical and radiological examinations were done to rule out pregnancy as well as malignancy in all patients, end quote. And so that's exactly the take home here is believe it, look for it. And if the level doesn't go down, then, then what to do? 
And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as we end the podcast uh, in just a, a few moments. Because we can't just, just kind of leave them there. I mean, yes, it's okay to say, I believe this is a phantom, this is related to your condition. But at what point do you do a DNC? Do, do you have to do that? I mean, that's the question. And there's, there's really no guidance for this. While evaluating for uh, ectopic pregnancy, evaluating the ovaries with an ultrasound is super reasonable, of course, and excluding an intrauterine pregnancy. If all of that is negative and it's a tonic low-level 8-CG, unlike the case that had a beta 8-CG of 290, I mean, that's more than you would suspect, because I'm going to tell you the, these values here in a minute that are typically hovering around the 20s, 30s, at most uh, 50 milli-IUs per ml. Um, you know, would you do a DNC on this? Um, and there's no right or wrong answer. I, I think it's the most conservative. And when you find no products of conception or chorionic villi, then say, hey, I think this is a phantom issue. Your ovaries look normal. Perhaps do a liver ultrasound, make sure it's not coming from a hepatic source, uh, and uh, excluding weird things like persistent headache or diplopia where they need a a brain MRI, uh, you know, I don't think that that's necessary. But all of those things that we just discussed uh, is part of that workup. Okay, so I told you I'd do it later. Apparently, I just did it now. But do you see how complicated this is? So, so yes, believe it. Absolutely. But how much down the rabbit hole do you have to go? There is no straight guidance for this. So I'm gonna leave that up to you. It, 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 is it worth doing a DNC? Taking a patient who already has a complicated life with end-stage renal disease and on dialysis, uh, or do you just follow it chronically and go, hey, I'm good with this assumption that this is phantom based on the uh, biochemistry that I'm about to discuss? Okay, so and I'm I'm okay with that as well. So DNC, uh, you know, MRI and all that stuff. Sure, why not? Is it necessary all the time? Possibly not. But you see how complicated this is because um, it's not that straightforward. Now, again, if you see a viable IUP, crown rump length, FHTs, that's a whole other issue. That's, that's problem B. <laughs> problem A is, is she pregnant or not? Is this real or not? B is, hey, you are pregnant and you're a high-risk pregnancy because of your end-stage renal disease. And, and that's another condition. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACOG does address uh, chronic kidney disease and pregnancy. That was part of the uh, Medical Complications of Pregnancy Clinical Expert Series back in June of 2019. Right? That's a great read. But again, we're, we're assuming here that once she's, she's already gotten out of the first trimester and now what's, uh, what's in store for her. All right. So that's chronic kidney disease and pregnancy. 
from June 2019 from the Green Journal from ACOG's Clinical Expert Series. Now let's get back to the original discussion, which is, is she pregnant or not? And to do that, I, I want to briefly review on the HCG biochemistry. I want us to briefly review HSG metabolism and origins because, yes, we all get sensational trophoblasts. We all learned that in medical school. But there's other places that physiologically produce HCG, especially in in body uh, aberrant conditions like end-stage renal disease, all right? So first of all, remember that HCG is heterodimeric, okay? So it's got two portions, the alpha subunit and the beta subunit. The alpha subunit is shared, okay? So remember that that's not unique. The alpha subunit is shared between FSH, LH, TSH, and HCG. While the alpha subunit is shared, remember, of course, that it's that beta subunit that is specific uh, to this pregnancy function. And remember that HCG as an entire entity can can be evaluated in several ways, all right? So some tests look for the whole molecule. Some look for nicked HCG that's enzymatically cleaved. There's hyperglycosylated HCG. There's the free beta subunit. Um, there's the uh, core fragment. And, and different tests look for different things, all right? The majority of the form that's found in the urine is, is the cleaved type. That's the beta core fragment. That's what you're really looking for uh, in a in an ACG a urine test, all right? So while the alpha subunit is the same for other pituitary hormones, remember that's LH, FSH, and TSH, the beta is the unique one uh, and that's the one that, that gives it its biological functions uh, to carry out its specific job, all right? So not all HCG is the same. Again, there's hyperglycosylated, there's nicked, uh, there's free beta uh, subunits. Um, and so you got to know what, really what you're looking at. But in general, all the tests are very good. So when we order a beta HCG, that's exactly what we're looking for, the, the beta subunit. Um, and that's super helpful also in, in figuring out something like a heterophilic inter, uh, antibody, all right? Which is yet another issue that you can consider here. Because there, especially in women, there are certain antibodies that cross-react with blood tests. And you can do a heterophilic antibody detection assay. But not all labs can do that. But the heterophilic antibody syndrome is when, hey man, their beta keeps coming up low-level positive. Like it won't go away. It's annoying. It's between 5 and like 20. And it's just kind of hovering out. But then you check their urine. Uh, and the urine is negative, right? That's the case for uh, the heterophilic antibody. There was a nice review of all of this uh, that was published in the Green Journal, May of 2015. The title was Urinary Levels of Intact Free Beta and Beta Core Fragment of 8CG in Early Pregnancy. Um, so what they did here is they they checked urine samples early in the morning just from an N of 37, right? So this is 37 women with viable pregnancies uh, in, in early pregnancy to try, and, try to figure out um, which uh, was the HCG type that was quickest to be detected in the urine, all right? And super interesting because what they found was intact HCG, right? The entire molecule could be found as early as eight days after ovulation. So basically sh just sh very shortly after implantation. Incredible, right? However, free beta HCG was not measurable until day 21. And free beta HCG occurred at a constant level, about one one hundredth of intact HCG. 
So it is important to know what, what kind of test you're looking at. So you want a pregnancy test for your most accurate that measures total HCG in the urine, okay? Not just the, the beta HCG. Most commercial pregnancy tests are looking for intact HCG. But it makes the point here that n- not all tests are the same. Not all HCG is the same. It's not one like one person, you are HCG. It's HCG in variety. Now, there are all forms of HCG, intact, free beta, beta core. And if you're looking for a pregnancy test, the earliest, the most reliable looks like it's going to be the intact HCG, which according to this publication uh, from the Green Journal in 2015, could be found eight days after ovulation in those who are pregnant. Not finished yet. There's more. But wait, there's more. Ah, but you know it's never that easy, right? Because hold on, hold on. We just said HCG as an intact molecule um, can be the, the, the most sensitive. It's the earliest detected. Okay, got it. However, to be comprehensive, the standards by the WHO and the NIBSC I know you don't know what that is because I had to look that up myself. <laughs> NIBSC all agree the best pregnancy tests, the best urine tests, don't just look for HCG, the intact variety. Yes, that's found eight days uh, after ovulation. It's, it can be found super early. But if you're just looking for that, you're going to miss different versions, different variants of HCG because as HCG levels rise, catch this guy's watch. So does their level of metabolism and byproducts that's excreted in the urine. So the World Health Organization and NIBSC, which is the National Institute for Biological Standards and Control. Yeah, that's a real thing. Says that the most accurate pregnancy test shouldn't be just the intact HCG, which happens at the earliest of detection, but it should include all variants of the ACG, including those that are metabolized, because those becomes predominant as levels rise. Wow. All right. So to be clear, the WHO standard for ACG variants includes intact ACG, NICT HCG, the alpha, the beta subunit, and the ACG beta core fragment. Guys, my only point in saying on uh, is, is getting this, we're going to get back to our patient with end-stage renal disease in a minute, is that look how complicated it is when we say get a urine pregnancy test. We all assume it's looking for HCG. Yes, technically, yes, but holistically, it should be looking for HCG, NICT HCG the alpha, the beta subunit, and the beta core fragment to be the most comprehensive and the most accurate. Wow. All right. So when somebody asks you, what what does a pregnancy test check for? You go, HCG. Yes. Cheap answer. You're right. (laughs) But the most complete answer, well, it's looking for the variance of HCG, which will vary based on the week of pregnancy, because as the levels rise, the amount of metabolized product of HCG that's now excreted in the urine will go up. So while initially you can find the intact HCG, that can later change to things like the beta core fragment as gestational age goes by. So, yes, you're looking for HCG, but you're looking for multiple variants of that, of that one family, so that you don't escape detection. Here's the clinical pearl. Yes, this is mainly produced by syncytial trophoblasts during pregnancy. But there are also some smaller physiologic amounts that are produced by the pituitary by the testes, by liver, and colon. So this isn't just a phenomenon for end-stage renal disease. There's also this phantom HCG in menopause. 
Okay, so I've received um, both uh, questions from our podcast family members and and over the years from a variety of different residents. We're like, hey, this patient's like 60 and she's got an 8 CG that's like low level positive. Ovaries look normal. She feels fine. No vaginal bleeding. What is going on? Like that's physiologic. That's the phantom 8 CG in menopause. Uh, and, and it's tonically, uh, historically, at, at around, you know, under 25 um, because there's other sources of HCG outside of pregnancy. So this has led others to published reference ranges for HCG based on age and medical conditions. This was last done in BMJ case reports in 2017, uh, and it's a great table. The title of this uh, publication is Evaluation of Elevated HCG in a 59-Year-Old Woman. Okay, so very similar here, not end-stage renal disease, but it, but it makes the point here that not all ACGs are pregnant. Yes, that's the main thing, especially in reproductive age women, but there's other caveats here, all right? So here are the reference ranges based on these conditions, based on this uh, publication. It's a real nice little table, all right? Number one, premenopausal patient um, who is non-pregnant, of course, that HCG should be what? Less than five, okay? So premenopausal, non-pregnant, that's less than five. Perimenopausal, up to age 55, non-pregnant. Here's the catch, guys. It can be up to eight, you're like, oh, come on, five to eight, that's going to show up as a positive, um, but especially on a beta quant. Some have put that as high as 10, all right? So perimenopausal, age 41 to 55, non-pregnant, uh, it can be normal around eight up to 10. Postmenopausal here, watch this, guys, big bomb being dropped here. Postmenopausal, age 55 or above, that HCG level, that beta quant uh, should be considered normal up to 14, Wow. I mean, so you see, the point is that not all, all beta HCGs and not all ACG positives are interpreted the same. So premenopausal, perimenopausal, postmenopausal could be up to 14 in some patients, right? Not everyone. And of course, in things like uh, gestational trophoblastic disease, uh, it's greater than 100,000 in general. Okay. Now you got to be careful with that one because, of course, or multifetal gestations. But this is the take-home point here, is that in certain conditions uh, and, and or just age strata, ACGs need to be interpreted differently. And here's the catch. When they're end-stage renal disease, there's a variety of reasons why HCG um, could, could be elevated. That has to do with um, altered levels from the pituitary, altered filtration, uh, other uh, interfering substances. So there's a, there's a variety of reasons and a variety of publications that have looked on this, whether it is uh, due to poor renal filtration, uh, due to altered elimination from physiological sources. We know, we don't know how common it is, but we know that in some patients, low tonic levels of HCG, especially end-stage renal disease patients, without pregnancy uh, can can be normal and not a cause for alarm. And again, very well uh, documented also, as we just mentioned, in menopause, where, uh, and study after study has looked at this, where excluding pregnancy and excluding malignancy, which is the right thing to do, it's okay to have these low tonic uh, levels of, of HCG that won't go away because that's a physiological variant, all right? Now, our job is never to go straight to that, like, oh, this is a variant, it's a phantom, you're fine. You still need to do due diligence. We never want to, again, relegate somebody to a, a, a lab of a variant uh, or an anomaly 
Still got to do uh, what's considered uh, acceptable and normal. Now, if they're menopause, I, I don't think they need a DNC. Come on, guys. I mean, if they're menopausal, especially if they've been way menopausal, like that 59-year-old, don't do a DNC. Look at the ovaries. Uh, ask if there's any other issues. If they're completely asymptomatic and it's a low level, then let them go. It becomes more tricky when they're reproductive age, okay, where we don't want to miss an ectopic or something similar to that. Now, here's a catch for menopause. It has been published because this is typically coming from the pituitary. This is a nice little clinical pearl, maybe a stump your professor kind of thing. Uh, There's a way to test to make sure in menopause it's coming from the pituitary. There's published evidence that giving those patients just a little bit, uh, a, a small course of estrogen, not as HRT, But just to suppress, give them 7 to 14 days of estrogen and then measure it again, that beta should drop. Is that wild or what? Again, very well published that giving uh, supplemental estrogen uh, due to the effects on the pituitary uh, can decrease production of HCG. This nice little test in menopausal patients is nothing new. That was published again, Stenman et al. That was published in the Journal of Clinical uh, Endocrinology and Metabolism, 1987. The title was Serum Levels of Human Chorionic Gonadotropin in Non-Pregnant Women and Men Are Modulated by Gonadotropin-Releasing Hormone and Sex Steroids. So something to consider, not that you have to do that, but as a nice little quinky-dink, if they're postmenopausal, low tonic levels of HCG, supplemental estrogen can bring that down. As we get ready to wrap this up, I did find other potential conflictors here to ACG testing in end-stage renal disease and even in menopause, just in general. Don't forget that rheumatoid factor um, can actually cause, in some patients, a false positive ACG. Yeah, I mean, it's been published. And of course, is the issue of heterophilic antibodies that we've already discussed. To really drive this home, this whole issue of of trying to protect the patient, right, and trying to do the right thing, there's also overkill. I mean, you, you, we can take this evaluation to the extreme, which is dangerous. This was actually published in The Lancet in 2000. The title of this publication is, and I'm going to read you this story. I mean, it's just like, I mean, wow, at some point, just stop, 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 stop. It's too much. And look what this patient went through because of a false um, diagnosis of, uh, of HCG. Right. The title was, again, from The Lancet, False Diagnosis and Needless Therapy of Presumed Malignant Disease in Women with False Positive Human Chorionic Gonadotropin Concentrations. So just to be clear, when I talked about these conflicting um, elements that can throw off a test, we're talking about a serum test, okay, even a beta HCG, not urine. We're talking about a, a beta, a blood test, all right? But listen to this case that was highlighted. The case that was actually from the 90s, but again, referenced in The Lancet in 2000, all right? So this patient, this young woman had persistent elevated 8CG, okay? And pregnancy was not visible, either the tubes or the uterus. Quote, repeated elevated levels for human chorionic gonadotropin in this young non-pregnant woman misled her gynecologist to suspect thromboembolic disease. Remember, in The Lancet, they're kind of rehashing what happened in the late 90s. They go on to say, quote, in addition to being used as a pregnancy marker, HCG is an important tumor marker, primarily in testicular cancer and trophoblastic disease. The young woman was subjected to several chemotherapeutic regimens, then hysterectomy, then bilateral salpingo and a thoracotomy. Here it is, guys. Listen to this. 
quote, no malignant disease was found in biopsies or surgical resections. Her HCG then remained unchanged and was shown to be falsely elevated when a sample was sent for analysis with a different HCG analysis tool, end quote. Wow. So at the end of all that, in addition to her hysterectomy, bilateral salpingo oophorectomy, thoracotomy, the, the, the answer that they came back with was, um, oops, uh, sorry, that was false. I mean, unacceptable. All in trying to protect the patient, all right? So I, again, not, not a personal call on any provider on any decision, but at some point you're like, do you really want to pursue a thoracotomy for this? So just be aware, guys. And now that we, that's why there's these tables, menopause, end-stage renal disease. So it's good to evaluate, and it's also time to bring things back down to reality when we know that, hey, she's otherwise asymptomatic, this has been well-documented, it's part of shared decision-making, and it's okay to stop the trail down the rabbit hole. All right, podcast family. So that brings us to a wrap. All to say, how interesting is that? Now, I remember learning that as a resident, but it got fouled away like super rare back in the end of the last file and the bottom of all the files in the last row. Wait a minute. Is there something with ERC, uh, end-stage renal disease, ERSD, and ACG test? Wait a minute. That could be false. Now, the right thing to do is get the ultrasound and order a beta ACG and then track that. That's the right thing to do. Now, how much further to pursue this DNC, ovarian scans, repeat imaging, you know, that's a case-by-case deal because there's no one set uniform guideline. There's explanations of what to do. There's case reports. There's case series. But there isn't this if A, then B. All to say, be on the lookout. Believe it, but always be on the lookout for these variants that in certain situations can be phantom and lead you down the rabbit hole. Curiosity often leads to trouble. Oh, 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 oh. Goodbye, Dinah. Goodbye. Well, after this, I shall think nothing of, fall- of falling downstairs. Oh, yeah. Do you remember when Alice fell down the rabbit hole? What a weird show, right? I mean, just that story, the original story, Alice in Wonderland, just like the original, uh, you know, true Wonka, the book, not the movies, that weird takes on the on, on the book. Man, they're just like really weird. You're like, um, opium much? I mean, just weird and dark. But yeah, she fell down the rabbit hole. And so that's one of the difficulties with, uh, with what we do, right, is we're trying to protect a patient, do the right thing, but it's super easy to go down the rabbit hole. Well, podcast family, just when you would say, I don't think I ever would see that. Well, we did, so it's out there. And if anything, it's a super cool little review of some of the weird stuff, again, that exists in clinical medicine. So I hope you found this helpful. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song?